Welcome to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Seta. We have a fantastic new episode for you today, but before we dive in, I'm thrilled to announce the return of Illuminate Live. Join us for a live podcast recording experience, along with tacos and tequila in Austin, Texas. This special event will take place during the Ortho Innovation Summit, hosted by KLON Custom Digital Solutions, and runs from February 29th through March 2nd. So reserve your spot today at klonortho.com slash innovation summit. And be sure to check the podcast show notes for exclusive Illuminate promo codes for both doctors and team members. We're looking forward to seeing you in Austin. And as we wrap up our final episode of 2023, my heartfelt thanks go out to all of you for your unwavering support over the past year. From all of us here at Illuminate, we're wishing you a holiday season that is both merry and bright. And stay tuned, as Illuminate will be back in the new year with an exciting lineup of guests. And now, without further ado, we're on to today's episode. general dentist in San Diego. You know, I worked for this guy, John Castle, super awesome. He had the little gold mine philosophy. You can have a little gold mine or you can have a big production, you know, and sometimes at the end of the day, you'll go home with the same amount of money. But what is the stress level on these two different types of operations? I kind of want to have the more like little gold mine. I'm Dr. Chris Seta, and I'm shining a light on the innovators of our profession. Welcome to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. On today's show, my guest is Dr. Jared Gianquinto. Today, I'm thrilled to shine a light on an innovator who has truly embraced and leveraged the digital workflow in orthodontics. Dr. Jared Gianquinto practices in the Central Valley of California and is known for his forward-thinking and technology-driven approach to orthodontics. Known affectionately as Dr. G by his patients, Jared has a captivating journey into the specialty that began as a dental officer in the Navy aboard the USS Ronald Reagan aircraft carrier. Beyond his commitment to orthodontics, Jared wears many hats. He's a devoted husband, proud father of two, skilled pilot, a passionate surfer, and to top it off, a fellow bass player. As you'll hear on today's episode, Jared returned to his hometown to start his practice from scratch in 2011. From the beginning, Jared was determined to differentiate his office from the existing orthodontic landscape. As his schedule got busier, he sought ways to optimize efficiency while enhancing the patient experience. This led Jared to incorporate cutting-edge systems into the office, including KLO and custom braces, ULAB and 3M clarity aligners, in-brace, and grin remote monitoring. Join us as we get an insider's perspective on how Jared successfully navigated these new technologies. It's a fascinating exploration into the intersection of innovation, efficiency, and patient care. 
Well, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, Jared? I'm doing great. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Why don't you tell everyone where we're at? We are at uh, Coastal Creative. It's a really awesome production facility in... Where are we? We're in St. Pete, technically. Okay, awesome, awesome. And they have these podcast studios that do everything from video production to audio production, and it's pretty impressive, so I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I have to mention you flew all the way out from California last night. Yeah. So thank you so much. It's an honor to finally have you on the podcast. Oh, I'm glad to be here. So I want to give a quick shout out to RJ Raposa, who is my Kale Owen rep, who sort of orchestrated this whole conversation. RJ is fantastic. He's uh, one of the best dressed in orthodontics. <laughs> so thank you, RJ, for making this happen. Thanks, RJ. And Jared, you were nice enough to bring a bottle here. It's a tall blue ceramic bottle. Yeah. What's going on well, with you this? You know what? I kind of wanted to break precedent because, you know, you give these amazing drinks to everyone every time you, they come <laughs> in for the podcast. And I figured, you know, it's time that somebody brought you something. So I found this tequila a few weeks ago at this Mexican restaurant we go to in San Luis Obispo. And it is a special type of tequila called a Cristalino. So it's an Añejo tequila. Okay, and yeah. then they take the barrel-aged tequila and then filter it so it's clear. Nice. So you, you get all the complexity of the tequila itself and a little bit of the softening of the barrel, but then you don't taste so much like wood. Okay, yeah. yeah. I didn't even know they did filtered Añejo tequilas. Yeah, I didn't uh, either until like a couple <laughs> weeks ago, so I had to bring you some. Ever since the Moz podcast, apparently I'm a tequila aficionado, right. which I'm not complaining about. Uh <laughs> But uh, this is pretty amazing. I'm going to take a sip yeah. here. Well, cheers, you, man. You, yeah, cheers. Let's yeah. let's All try right. this out. And we had this craft ice, which is super cool. These big old blocks of clear. Oh, you, you know, got to do it yeah, right. In the veteran-owned like ice company. That's right, from the yeah. doggery. So, yeah, yeah. So I appreciate that being a veteran. Absolutely. Yeah. So what I'm getting is like I'm definitely tasting the barrel. For me, it's like vanilla notes. Yeah. But sometimes I notice with añejos is you get like. I don't know, maybe a little bit of the funk of the barrel, but, yeah. which I think the filtering maybe helps dial down yeah, or clear I feel, out. Yeah, like so. I feel like, with like the nose hits you first with uh, some of the añejos, like where you'll, you'll bring it up. And yeah, like it's it. a nose. Yeah. yeah. And then this one, it's softer, softens it quite a bit. It is. Yeah. Uh, this tastes- is golden. This might be a new favorite. Well, thank you so much for this lovely yeah. tequila. We, of course, are having a stimulating conversation yes. today. Lots of great topics to dive into. We're going to be learning about your journey into ortho, which I have to say is super interesting. Circuitous. Um, Circuitous, but uh, mysterious. Uh, (laughs) After reading, I think you might be James Bond. I think I'm more like Johnny English. (laughs) We're going to be talking about your practice today, ortho arts in California. And, you know, you're known for your efficiencies in practice, bringing a lot of cool digital technologies in. So we have lots of great tips and tricks on how to implement those. We'll be talking about some cool products such as KLO Embraces, Embrace, 3M Aligners, and ULab. We want to chat about your hobbies and interests, of which you have many. Too many. Too many. You and me both, brother. (laughs) Before we dive in, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you and tell us where you're from in California. I was born and raised in Bakersfield, California. It's not like the rest of California. I mean, people think of San Francisco or LA or Hollywood or San Diego or things like that. But Bakersfield is not like that at all. It's yeah. Like, Where is it? It's in the Southern Central Valley. So it's a hundred miles from the beach. It's a hundred miles from LA. Bakersfield is a big farming and oil town. So mm. that's what the economy is pretty much based around. And, Interesting, um, yeah. and it's also known as the little red dot for California because it's uh, much more conservative sense. than the rest of the area. Hmm. So Bakersfield has a lot more in common with like a Midwest type area than it does the rest of California. 
So yeah. it's an interesting place to be. So if you had to visualize it, you're in the center of the state. So obviously you have the Pacific Ocean on one side and then the Sierra Nevadas, I guess, along you know the East Coast, right? Yeah. And so you're sort of in the middle of the state, but a little northwest of LA. Do I have that, that You do. That's, that's okay. an excellent description of where it is. Uh, okay. What was life like in Bakersfield growing up? I grew up, my parents had horses and we did cowboy stuff. And my dad was a lawyer and he uh, had his clients and things. And we did a lot of traveling and my mom was a travel agent. We got to go on a lot of cool trips and stuff, but didn't have anything to compare it to. You know, it definitely wasn't like growing up at the beach or anything like that. But yeah, it was a great place to grow up. Is Bakersfield known for anything in particular? It's actually a music town. Oh, is that right? Yeah. It's known as Nashville West because there's this whole thing called the Bakersfield Sound, which is sort of this kind of twangy country. Oh, interesting. Yeah, the big artists that came out of Bakersfield are Merle Haggard and uh, wow. Buck Owens. And then you have a whole other side of the spectrum, which is actually, you know, corn is from, from <laughs> Bakersfield too. So you have metal and country. Yeah. That's quite the mix. Yes, it's quite the mix. Oh, that's super cool. So Jared, Gianquinto, it sounds Italian, but Gianquinto would be like C-H-I, and you've got a Q in your name, which I don't think is very typical for Italian. So. You no, know, it's a portmanteau, I guess, of Spanish oh. and Italian. My dad's family is from Sicily. Hmm. And there's family rumors. We don't really know what the whole family history is, but you know the Gian part is Italian and the Quinto part is Spanish. And somehow in Sicily in mid 1800s or something, there we are. So it's one of those <laughs> funny names where everyone who has the exact same last name were related somehow. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So there's like Gia Quinto, and they're not related. But then there's the Gian Quintos, and it can trace them all back to the same town in Sicily, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's super neat. Yeah. So you mentioned that your dad was a judge, right? Yeah. He retired as a judge and uh, about, uh, I guess about five years ago now. His background is pretty amazing. Being a judge was his third or fourth career. You know, he had a career in engineering and he was in the Navy and did a bunch of other stuff and then eventually went to law school and practiced as an attorney for 30 years and ended oh, wow. up as a traffic court judge in Bakersfields. Uh, that so made some interesting conversations later on down oh, the road. I bet. Oh, yeah. Because, I, oh, hey, where did I know your last name from? Like, oh, wait, well, were you in traffic court recently? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, man, was that your dad, the judge? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a little awkward, I guess. Yeah, but, you know, he was fair with people. So That's they good. remember that. That's yeah. Good. Yeah. And how about your mom? Mom was a stay-at-home mom for the most of my childhood, but uh, yeah. she went back to uh, work as a travel agent and then worked for the courts too. But she's from the Southwest and they both ended up in Los Angeles, met and decided that they were tired of the rat race in LA and wanted some more wide open spaces and met some people from Bakersfield that they've used to visit and decided that that's where they wanted to go. So they packed up everything from Encino and moved to Bakersfield in 1974. And Bakersfield was very much like the Western town at that time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they've been there ever since. Awesome. Yeah. One kind of cool thing when I was a kid was my parents are both pilots. So they both got their pilot's licenses when I was really little. We used to fly everywhere all the time. It was oh, it was so it cool. was a lot of fun, and, and so you know you think about road trips in a car and like maybe getting broken down somewhere random, but at least you have like signs like where you kind of know where you're going to end up. But in an airplane, you don't have that. <laughs> so if you're having a mechanical problem in the middle of nowhere, like you need to find the closest airport and you just land. And, yeah, and I never thought out. about that. Yeah, and we flew from Bakersfield as far as like Illinois and New Mexico and all those kind of things. We had some pretty oh, wow. amazing adventures, and yeah. And now that I think about that, because I'm a pilot, I have my kids in the backseat and they're little and they can maybe do about like an hour and a half in the backseat before, yeah, be- before yeah. they start getting antsy. And I was like, mom, how did you we do those like crazy long trips? Like where we would leave out of Bakersfield and like fly like five hours or six hours and end up in Nebraska. And she's like, 
oh, well, we would just go up to like 15,000 feet and we'd go on oxygen up front, but we would just not give you any. And you would just, <laughs> you would just go to sleep, you know? I'm like, what, mom? It's like, so hypoxia? Yeah, yeah, a little hypoxia never hurt anybody, you know? We'd check and make sure your lips were, you know, weren't oh turning gosh, blue or anything. Crazy. I'm like, oh. You know, I've never been in a small plane, but it makes <laughs> sense. So it's not pressurized like a jet that no, most no. of us are accustomed to. So no. awesome. Yeah. Well, really cool story. So where'd you end up going for undergrad? I went to University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, and my mom's from the Southwest, and my requirements for school was had to be next to skiing, <laughs> and had to have like a med school nearby, and, and UNM fit both of those bills, plus had really awesome Mexican food, so like, I was, all right, this is, this is cool. It works, yeah. And you yeah. originally wanted to go into medicine, I assume? Yeah, that was the original plan, and then you, know, you get further along in the education, and you realize that maybe that wasn't your goal. Maybe your dream is something different. Yeah. And so I started spending time at the hospital and with the doctors and stuff, and I specifically wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. So I started hanging out in orthopedics and, you know, I saw that these doctors were spending so much time at the hospital. Like they just basically lived there all the time. And I just said, you know, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I need to find something else. So I looked into a couple of different things and saw in the student paper that there was an orthodontist that was hiring assistants and you didn't need any experience. Nice. And I was like, huh, let's go check out dentistry. Maybe that's the ticket. And I got a job as an orthodontic assistant for Dr. Rick Munoz in Albuquerque. And That's awesome. So you started as an orthodontic yeah, assistant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a crazy opportunity because, I mean, how many specialties can you jump in and start doing stuff on your own? And yeah. Ortho is pretty much the only one where you can really get hands-on experience. Yeah. I worked at a dental office before I applied to dental school, but it was mostly just cleaning the office, more or less restocking yeah. supplies. But I don't feel like you get like a real taste for it that way because I'm mean, all you're doing is suctioning maybe and helping right. out with procedures, like, but actually using your hands on stuff, like yeah. ortho is pretty cool. I was putting wires in and taking them out. And Yeah. Gotcha. So that's sort of what yeah. inspired you to apply to dental. Yeah. Applied to dental school and I kind of found out what my dream was a little bit late. So I was a little bit late for taking the DAT and getting set up for interviews and all that stuff. And I wasn't as organized the first time around. So I got waitlisted and ended up in the tech industry in San Luis Obispo for a year while I waited to get into dental school. Oh, so, yeah. What kind of tech stuff? I was an IT guy in college and got random jobs at different parts of the school. And I guess I had some interesting keywords on my resume that popped up on monster.com. So when I finished school and didn't have a solid acceptance anywhere, I was like, okay, let's see what kind of jobs I can get. And I got job offers to go into the tech industry and a bunch of different places. And I settled on San Luis Obispo because it was cheaper than going to Silicon Valley. <laughs> Interesting. And my brother lived there at the time. So I got to move into his place too. So we got to hang out for a Do that. you think having that exposure to like the tech industry, because I think of you as like a tech forward guy. Yeah. Do you think that yeah. part in it? Yeah. Because that was during the tech bubble, you know, and so all these startups were happening everywhere. And so I got that exposure to the whole startup culture at that time. And it was very different from what it is now. I mean, when you see these companies, like they're a lot more responsible than they used to be. I mean, it used to be like, okay, we're just going to build up this company and IPO and take the money and run, right? Like that's, that was what a lot of these thought, happened with yeah. a lot of these companies. And so many of those companies ended up just imploding, <laughs> really. Yeah. So I got a great job for the year while I was waiting to get into dental school and it was kind of tough to leave because I was making a lot of money at the time. But then I realized that this wasn't my dream either. Like I wanted to get into school. So sure. I left that and went to move from Morro Bay, California to Philadelphia to go to Temple. So what was your impression like of Philly? Because from what you're explaining, like you grew up in sort of horse country, more or less. Oh, man, it was a shock. Yeah. It was a shock, man. Because, uh, you know, going from like wide open spaces and like mountains and like beaches and stuff to like an East Coast city, like super urban environment. Like that was a pretty big shock. Yeah. Culture yeah. shock. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So after going to dental school there, like what do you like about Philly? I'd say my favorite thing about Philly is food. 
Like, <laughs> dude, it's, the food in Philly is awesome. They have so many different varieties of stuff. I mean, growing up, we had lots of great Mexican food and maybe some Italian food here and there. But like Philly is such an amazing food city. Like it's insane. Well, I think of Philly, I think of the, the cheesesteak. Right? Yeah, yeah. But it's more than that. Well, it is. It is. You know, and people think about, you know, whether it's is you're going to go to Pat's or Gino's. And I was always kind of rebel when it came to that. You know, like those are the two popular ones. And then you've got Jim's on South Street, which is a really good Oh, what's cheese Jim's? Steak. It's just another good cheesesteak place. You okay. Know? Yeah. But then once you're in the know and you learn about porchetta. Oh. Yeah. That's yes. a whole different level in, in Philly. I know about the porchetta. I don't really understand how it's made, but I guess it's like a roasted pork loin that they put on like a deli slicer or something. Yeah. Like. Yeah. They slow roast it. I think there's a couple of places to do it. It'll take a whole day to do it. And it's just this super tender, moist, like sliced pork. They put it on a Amoroso's roll with like sharp provolone and broccoli rob. Ugh. It's amazing. Well, so you're getting me hungry now. Yeah, man. Good. Yeah. So once you discover those, you're like, okay, yeah, I'll cheesesteaks, yeah, all right. That's cool. But then the porchetta is like, that's the, that's that's the, awesome. that's the ticket. So uh, Jared, tell me, how'd you get involved with the Navy? So when I first moved to Philly, you know, I had these dreams. Like, I'm going to be a dentist. I'm going to be a rich dentist. I'm going to move back to the Central Coast. And like, my life is going to be perfect. And then when you get into school and you realize that, well, it's expensive. <laughs> I'm living in Philly and like... And I'm taking out full student loans and I'm eating ramen noodles and living on someone's couch. It's like, this is kind of stressful. And I saw some of my friends who um, were on military scholarships and all they had to worry about was school. And I was like, you know what? That's, that's a pretty, pretty awesome deal. I mean, yeah, you got to sign on the dotted line and go where they tell you to later. But as far as like being in school, that seemed like it was the stress-free way to do it. I always wanted to serve. You know, I pursued an academy appointment out of high school and got medically disqualified. So I had a knee injury and I, they wouldn't pass me at the time. Gotcha. So I didn't think that, that was in the cards, but I talked to the recruiters and they said, well, yeah, well, the requirements are a little different if you're going to be a dentist. So yeah, the medical examiner said I was good to go. And then I just had to get the recommendations. And I didn't know this at the time, but I was up for a two-year scholarship. And those were really competitive because they have like a ton of four years and then a few three years and then like only a few two-year scholarships for the whole country. And fortunately, my my dad was friends with our congressman back in Bakersfield and he wrote me a recommendation for my scholarship and I got it. And that made the second two years of dental school so much easier. But I did owe them three years of active duty and then like five years of reserves at the time. And you think of that early in your career and it seems like it's forever. And then later on down the road, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal at all. Yeah. So what was life like as a Navy dentist? It was kind of crazy. You know, like a, when you get out of school, you know, you they put you into a credentialing tour where they want to make sure that you you know what you're doing before they send you out in the fleet where they don't have any supervision and stuff and say, no, you're not going to hurt anybody. And so um, you have your choice of like an AUGD or a GPR or just like going and doing a credentialing tour where they just watch you and you don't get any like academic credit. And so I did an AGD at 32nd Street, and that was awesome because we got to rotate through all the specialties and everything. And clinical education at Temple was pretty awesome. So they pretty much let me go out and do my own thing after a short time. But my first duty station after that was on an aircraft carrier, which was what? pretty awesome. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> so which carrier were you on? I was on the USS Ronald Reagan. Oh, yeah, no way. Which was the newest, sexiest carrier at the time. So it was, you know, it was a pretty cool Yeah. Deal. So what was life like on the carrier? Uh, you know, it was a normal job in a weird place. You're working in a little dental office, but it's moving and you have jets flying off the top of it all the time, you know? So, and your schedule is kind of crazy, but I had this dream from early on and being around aviation and stuff that, you know, and I saw Top Gun when I was like 10, you know? So <laughs> I wanted to see if I could get a jet ride and being a dentist on an aircraft carrier, it's basically the only way as a Navy dentist that you can get a ride. <laughs> That's So awesome. yeah, so it kind of boiled down to that one So goal. you did get a ride after I did. all. I did, okay. I did, Yeah. 
And what was that like? Oh man, it was the two and a half hours of the most amazing experience like in the Navy. And it was touch and go, like trying to get that to happen. There were a whole lot of things that you had to do ahead of time because they don't just let you sit in the back seat. You got to get your backseat qualifications. You have to have approvals from like different levels and all that stuff. And it was a pretty big deal. But, you know, getting shot off the catapult going from zero to 160 miles an hour in three seconds is pretty, pretty wow, amazing. Yeah. Pretty intense, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. So that was awesome. Sweet. <laughs> After you finished your time in the Navy, you went out to practice as a dentist, right? Yeah. But, you know, while I was in the Navy, though, I kind of got burned out. I mean, mm. working on that carrier was tough. And we saw patients six and a half days a week. And that's a lot of stress and strain on your body. Like when you're seeing that many patients, you know, drilling days and a fill, week. Yeah, yeah. And drilling and filling that much. Right. And I just kind of realized that this isn't, I don't know, I'm not sure if this, I'm in it for the, a whole career of this, right? So what's out there? And I remembered ortho, like how fun and positive that was. And from a baseline standpoint, it's positive, right? Like you think about patients in the general dentistry chair, they don't want to be there. Nobody really wants to be in the, right. in the general dentistry chair. Yeah. They're there because they have to be, right? Mm-hmm. But at some level in orthodontics, they're there because they want to be. Yeah. Whether it's their mom or dad wants them to be there <laughs> or if they're looking to make their smile awesome. So like at a baseline level, it's a much more positive profession. Yeah. I, that's the main reason, as you know, I was a general dentist too. Yeah. And like you said, no one really wants to be at the no. dentist and you're delivering bad news a lot of times yeah. that your tooth has a cavity yeah. or yeah. it's extracted. Or how fun is it when you have those patients that haven't seen you for a really long time and like <laughs> you have to tell them you need like 10 grand worth of work, you know? Yeah. But in the ortho community, like they already know it's going to be expensive. You Selective. Know? Yeah. And they don't necessarily have to do it. They want to do it. So it's a different experience from the beginning. And people are super happy with your work. I mean, you, hopefully they're super happy with your work. But mm-hmm. I mean, how many times when you were doing root canals, like, oh man, that, I'm so glad you found that MD2 <laughs> canal. <laughs> They said that all the time, right? Jared. Come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. So I decided to apply to ortho and that was a crunch too, because I was on this deployment schedule and trying to get my applications out and everything and running up to the flight deck with my stack of letters that all had to go out to get the recommendations back before we steamed past Hawaii. Cause like <sighs> the mail gets weird out there. Like you just really don't know like how long stuff's going to take. Interesting. Yeah. So I wasn't really sure if I got everything to everyone on time. And it turned out I ended up getting some interviews and then ended up going back to Temple again. Wow. Which, so, yeah. How did you feel about going <laughs> like back to Philly? Bittersweet, man. Yeah. Bittersweet, you know, because I was living in San Diego at the time and that was some pretty awesome living, you know? Yeah. And you get used to, you know, summer year around and surfing and being outdoors all the time. And then you're like, okay, if I really want to do this, I've got to move back to Philly again. And I felt like at the time there was nothing holding me back and... At least I knew what I was in for this time and was able to you know, move into a part of town I liked and just focus on school. All right. Yeah. So tell us about the ortho program at Temple. Temple's a great program. You know, there weren't too many full-time faculty. We had a lot of part-timers and they were all amazingly successful orthodontists in their own communities. And they all had very different ways of doing things. So you got to learn these little pearls from everyone and learn how everyone treated their own cases and kind of design your own style. Mm-hmm. so to speak. I understand there was a class below you with a lot of well-known residents. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, the superstar class. Yeah, it was the first all-female class that uh, Temple had had in a long time. And um, it was just these rock stars. You know, you've got Trista Felty, Heather Desch, oh, wow. and Susie Padre, and Brianna Reed. And like, they're, yeah, they were like the all-stars. It was really awesome. Did you go to Tweed? I didn't go to Tweed. Okay. Yeah. So that was like a big thing at Temple. Like everyone got, you know, okay. got to go to Tweed in you know, your second year. And that was like, once you graduate from Tweed, they, you were kind of like, let loose in the clinic to do your own thing because oh, you, okay. you went did your wire bending boot sure. camp and stuff like that. And Tweed, as you know, is in Tucson, which is my mom's hometown. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, she was born in Santa Fe, but her family had a guest ranch in Tucson. They had a hotel in Santa Fe and then a guest ranch in Tucson and then another hotel down in Mexico. And so they used to to do the circuit there. But I didn't really know that like there was like an orthodontic history segment in there somewhere. You know, it was kind of wild. So I remember sitting down with my grandmother and she was telling me stories about these crazy dentists that they used to come mm. and have parties at the hotel. Like, what, what are you talking about? Oh, yeah. I think there were all these orthodontists that used to come in and they almost burned the hotel down one time. They're having <laughs> such a really good time. And I come to find out that it was the Tweed Group. And <laughs> at the end of the courses, they would come and have their parties at Westward Look, which was amazing that's so yeah. funny so yeah. like what year was that do you know? that was like in the mid 60s so yeah <laughs> my mom didn't need orthodontic treatment but my aunt was actually treated by charlie tweed what yeah yeah because oh, he was a local a, orthodontist yeah you know? like he was, wow, he was a local that's guy super cool yeah wow what a small world <laughs> and what a connection totally when we come back in just a moment how jared returns to bakersfield to open gianquinto ortho arts and what prompted him to embrace a digital workflow in his practice. Stay with us. You're listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. Kind support for this podcast comes from ULAB Systems. ULAB is the next generation aligner company. Designed exclusively for orthodontists, the ULAB team has created the most flexible aligner platform on the market. Orthodontists can choose the right aligner therapy to create their patients' best outcomes because they're unencumbered by pricing structure confines and restrictive protocols. Specifically, ULAB's new and unparalleled mix and match pricing enables the same popular a la carte option and now offers aligner bundles that include the U-Assist concierge service, fully customized packaging, shipping, and even retainers. U-Smile aligners are manufactured in the U.S. and can be delivered in as few as three business days from case acceptance. To learn more, head over to ulabsystems.com. Welcome back to our conversation with Dr. Jared Gianquinto. What was the next step for you after you graduated from Temple? It was 2011 and things were pretty bleak back then, you know. I mean, there was the class ahead of us. Some of the docs, you know, had gone in back into general dentistry to make ends meet and stuff. Because, I mean, it was the recession and no one was hiring. And it was nice to kind of ride that out in school. But then when you're kicked back out there in the real world again, like, oh, man, what am I going to do? I got these student loans that are going to come and do here soon. And. I looked for opportunities pretty much everywhere, and turns out the opportunity was back in my hometown. I thought I'd never go back to Bakersfield. You know, I thought I'd escaped, you know, like, <laughs> uh, you know. And it turns out there was a need there in Bakersfield. I mean, it had been the same kind of docs that had been there since I was an, a kid, and no one had started a new practice in Bakersfield in 20-some-odd years, so I figured, well, let's give it a shot. So I did. So were there a lot of orthodontists in Bakersfield? You know, there were a few, and they were kind of the same names that had been around for a long time. And, you know, you had your Shulman guys and some other big practices, and some people thought I was kind of crazy for opening up a <laughs> practice next door to everybody. And I figured it'd be, you know, friendly competition. And, you know, in California, a lot of times you'll have Trader Joe's right next to a, another major supermarket. And they kind of sell the same things, but the experience is different. So they're kind of competitors, but not really. Yeah. 
And so I figured we would differentiate ourselves by being kind of a more small, like family type of practice versus being a big clinic. And that was kind of the vision from the very beginning, because in my short time as a general dentist in San Diego, you know, I worked for this guy, John Castle, super awesome. He had the little gold mine philosophy. You can have a little gold mine or you can have a big production, you know, and sometimes at the end of the day, you'll go home with the same amount of money. But what is the stress level on these two different types of operations? And I I saw like, I kind of want to have the more like little little gold mine versus, you know, having a huge operation that I have to worry about. Right. Where you have, you know, 10 different office locations. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the great model, but that wasn't really for me. I know there's so many people out there that do amazing work and see a hundred patients a day. I knew from my own experience that I could not be my best self with that kind of a patient load. So I kind of designed my practice around, you know, having personal interactions with everyone and getting to know everyone. And because that's my favorite part of the orthodontic experience. It's like getting to know my patients and the parents and the families and building relationships with them. And if I were seeing 80 to 100 patients a day, there's a point where you just kind of can't do it anymore. Yeah. Maybe that makes me lazy, but (laughs) I just didn't didn't see that that was my dream, you know? So Jared, let me ask you this. When did you start incorporating digital workflow and digital technologies into the practice? I guess it was like year five or six of my practice that I was really trying to grow the aligner segment of my practice, which is really kind of tough because there's two monster Invisalign practices that are I could throw a rock at like at my yeah. office. So like aligner cases really weren't coming in the door. And I never really hit that point with aligners like with Invisalign where I was starting to get like breaks on lab deals. Like I always was like just got those soul crushing lab bills, you know, yeah. and like you're like, oh my gosh, I haven't gotten paid in I don't know how long, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I went to a 3M course in Breckenridge. Actually, Adam Schulhoff was one of the speakers way back then. I can't remember what he was talking about. It was way before Grin and all that kind of stuff. But they were talking about this indirect bonding thing using a Jewel printer and like orchestrate software at the time. So I said, okay. I looked at my Invisalign bill and I looked at the price tag for this, you know, 3D printing system. I was like, okay, I could knock this bill out with one payment to buy this whole system. So that's when we decided to do in-house aligners. And so fast forward a couple of years, you know, I've got these printers, we've got like in-office printing stuff down and we've got the kind of aligner thing going and I'm just still like struggling with my 70 to 80 patients a day, like a fixed. At that time, my favorite dentist in town who handled all the TMD cases, he retired like suddenly. Oh. And the new guy who took over the practice like wasn't doing any splints or any therapy anymore. And I said, oh man, I got to start doing this again. And and I did a little mini residency in the Navy on orofacial pain, but I was pretty rusty. So I said, let's go and see what's new. And I saw a course that got promoted by Ignacio Blasi. And he was at Penn at the same time I was at Temple. So I knew who he was. But this other guy on the speaker bill was Brandon Owen. He was way before Kale Owen. You know, I was just Brandon Owen. He's talking about his TMD management stuff. And I said, you know what? I need to get educated on TMD and airway again. And let's go to this course. So I went off to Virginia and spent the weekend out there. And it was a pretty small course of like 25 or 30 doctors. Got to sit down at the end of the day and have a beer with Brandon. And he told me about this bracket system that he was developing because he tried everything in the fast, like all these things that I had thought about, like insignia and sure smile and all these different stuff. He's like, I tried it all and I boiled it down to like this new system that I'm going to have out and ready on the, on the market pretty soon. And I said, oh man, I want to try it. In my mind, I could put together the theory and see like, okay, it's got indirect bonding. It's got digital treatment planning. It's got custom torque and the precision that all these things come together, like all these different pieces and parts that were like sort of downfalls of the other systems, like he's right. engineered it out. Yeah. I said, as soon as you've got this ready, like, let me know and I will try it. And it turned out that little napkin drawing type of thing was Kale Owen. 
Wow, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah, it was awesome. And like you said, it was like a confluence of technologies, right? Yeah, the 3D printing thing and the software thing and the manufacturing precision, all that kind of stuff came around at the same time. And that's what was that sort of like watershed moment. I imagine you like kept in touch with Brandon and... Well, like things kind of fell off for a while. I was going to get back into practice and I was still frustrated with how things were going. And then I get this email from Brandon, hey, you want to try out my bracket system? And like a year later, and I was like... Yeah, I do. I totally want to. I think it was the first MOPC conference. Oh, it was, was like, it? Okay. Yeah, because they were there and he, Brandon was talking about it there and I was totally ready to go and be one of his first customers. But we had to get to the point where we were scanning every patient at the consult because I didn't want to jump into a situation where, you know, we did the consult, took all our records and then had to bring them back for a scan visit. Right. And it was that meeting, Heather Hopkins had showed like her uh, workflow of extracting the intraoral photos from the scans. Like, okay, well, we can eliminate that step, then my staff will be a little bit more amenable to like doing this. And so we got scans done and that's part of our workflow now. And then we were ready to submit cases. So we did the digital setups and we got these preloaded brackets and bonded them up. And so, you know, indirect bonding is a barrier for a lot of people that are trying this new technology, but we had started with Embrace earlier that year. And we figured if we can do lingual indirect bonding pretty reliably, like the label will be no problem. And it was pretty much true. So we were able to just jump right into that and not have that be a barrier. So that was our segue into custom digital. It was pretty awesome. Interesting. You know, my first exposure to indirect bonding was like back when I was trained and it was really gluing brackets onto stone yeah, models the whole yourself. Way, right? Yeah, doing like a suck down. Yeah. And I was like, you know, it's great, but it's just really time consuming on the front end. Right. And, right. you know, for me, it's just like I was much more of a direct bond person. Yeah. But in my mind, where things really changed, I don't recall who said this, but they're like, you know, you do indirect bonding every day in your office when you put an aligner attachment yeah. template on. Yeah. And you bond. And I was like, you're right. Like, that's basically the same thing. So, yeah. you know, like, what's the hang up, right? Yeah, totally. But, you know, when you think about analog indirect bonding, yeah, that's pretty labor intensive. And I was thinking, <laughs> okay, how do you eliminate the analog part of it? And then the studies came back that said that the analog indirect bonding or really from an outcome standpoint wasn't any better than direct <laughs> bonding. So I'm like, okay, if the hang up is time, then yeah, you save some time with the indirect bonding. But I went to another course with 3M and, and if you're doing pre-pasted brackets, like it's really not that much, what's like three minutes to bond up a case, you know? Right. So the indirect bonding part was like not the key part of it. I mean, that's the hang up for some practices, but that, that's not where the efficiency comes. That might save you a couple of minutes of doctor time at the start, but later on down the road, it really doesn't do much for you. Totally makes sense. So for those listeners that might not be using digital systems in their office, why go KLON or why go with the digital bracket system? What do you think are some advantages? Well, you know, I mean, there's digital indirect bonding where you can put the brackets on the teeth in, in a cartoon and have them spit out an indirect bonding tray that you can put them on the teeth with. I mean, even 3M has a IDB system where you, know, you just pop in the pre-paced brackets and put them on. And that's nice. The challenge is, is that when you see that setup, I mean, you're really just seeing a cartoon because there's 45 degrees of play. If you, I mean, if you're using an 022 MBT prescription and you're using like a 1925 wire, you've got 45 degrees of play mm. and torque. Interesting. So that's why the reason why there's so much variability in like how the cases pan out. Now, the difference with KLO and brackets like Light Force is that when you fill the slot, like what you see is what you're going to get, good or bad. Like that's, that's what you're going to get, you know? <laughs> yeah. So when you look at like Dibs AI, they have a setting if you're using traditional brackets of whatever, any kind and not custom. And it says in there, like, this is a disclaimer that this is not exactly a real representation. You will have to do wire bending to see this, you know, because you have to compensate for the torque variation throughout the arch. The difference with like KLO and Light Force is that with the custom brackets and the higher precision, like 
you're going to get what you see on the screen. So how many cases did you have to do before you started to realize like some of these efficiencies in your practice? You know, I think we saw the light like pretty soon with our cases because when you're using MBT mechanics, you know, you, especially with O2-2, you put the brackets on and you put in, a, you know, one round wire and you do maybe another round wire, then you get in a rectangular and then, so you don't really see torque expression until at least like sometimes almost a year in. Uh-huh. And what we saw with KLO in brackets was when, after we put in the second wire at the second visit, they come in for visit three and we're like, like six months in, it's lined up already. Like, whoa, wait a second. This case, <laughs> this case looks like it's over a year in progress and it's been like maybe three or four, maybe six months, depending on how the spacing of it went. Yeah, it's crazy. I see that too. You know, I use KLO and Light Force in the practice. Yeah. And for us, it's like the second wire that goes in, which I was using an 1818. Now yeah. I'm using a 1616 16. square. Yeah, okay. And just getting them back. And usually that's like you said, around the six month mark. Yeah. And you're like, wow, this case looks like they've yeah, been well, I mean, for a year. Some of those cases, like I didn't, I didn't trust like the square wires. I mean, an MBT bracket, a square wire is not going to do anything, <laughs> right. right? So like, oh, it might as well be just an 18 round. So yeah. I didn't, I kind of like waited. I was like, okay, well, I don't want to jump in. I don't trust this whole, all these mechanics yet. I had one case where I put in like a 16 night tire and the next one I put an 18, 18 in and they both came in like the same day and like the. 16, like, okay, yeah, they're more leveled out. The rotations are gone. But like one of the 18, 18, I was like, whoa, this case looks <laughs> awesome. Like all the like, marginal ridges are like all lined up already. And like the cusps are all like, oh, wow, this is, this is amazing. And my staff saw that too. Yeah. That was really where we said, we need to do more of this. And we were trying to figure out how do we make this transition into custom digital. I mean, we knew that we needed to do it, but when you're busy, like the ball just kind of gets kicked down the road, you know, yeah. like, you know, you're like, when are we going to start? And then COVID hit. Oh, that was the impetus. Yeah. Well, I mean, we said, okay, this is an opportunity. Like we can retool the practice. So when we come back, we know we'll go all in with it. And so when we shut down and we kind of refine workflows and how we're going to do it. So when we rehired all the staff, we said, this is what we're doing now. Like there is no going back to the old way. Like all of our cases like are going to be custom. And that was painful. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, because like you start looking at which cases do I want to do this on? Like, okay, this patient wants to get started today. Like, are they going to wait two weeks? Like all these different little things. But as we got further on down the line and we're using it more, I realized that for every case that I direct bonded that I was kicking myself, you know, 12 months down the road, because now I just added, you know, so many more appointments in the schedule that that patient was going to need. Yeah. And so fast forward to, you know, a couple months later, we started getting pretty good case saturation. And I think like a year in, we started finishing those cases like ahead of schedule. And so magically, all of a sudden, like we started seeing holes in the schedule, which was insane. Yeah. You know, like we're all of a sudden my staff is not fighting for four o'clock appointments and patients are able to get the times that they want. And like, no one's complaining and like there's room in the, in the reception area and our production and collections are going up, but our patient numbers per day are going down. It was pretty amazing to see that. So now that you've claimed back some time with efficiencies, what are the ways that you're implementing or repurposing that time? (laughs) Um, Maybe not as productively as I probably should be. be. You know, my kids are little, you know, they're three and five and I want to spend more time with them. Okay. And so that's a great great answer. You know, everyone's got different ways of reclaiming their time and doing what they want. You know, I I know doctors who have like doubled and tripled the sizes of their practices. I know doctors who have taken multiple months off that they've recovered. And for me, it's like, all right, so my kids are in school. My wife's a teacher, so she teaches too. So she doesn't have all the time off that I do sometimes. I mean, she's during the school year, she's very busy. How do I be a good dad, you know, and still manage to practice at the same time? So 
we had a pretty good increase in our practice numbers, but also from a quality of life standpoint, I'm able to take more time off and spend more time with the kids. So oh, that's what I that's do. Amazing. Yeah. For me, you know, just sort of repurposing that time, you know, I feel like I'm out in the clinic a little bit more schmoozing, yeah. talking up the parents, yeah. being able to be a little more engaged right. because when you do see 80 to 100 patients a day, you got to keep it short and sweet, man. You're no, just, totally. You're bouncing from chair to chair. But and there's some docs who can impart that magical part of their personality in that short amount of time. That's not me. Like, yeah. I like to spend a little more time with my patients because it is my hometown. You know, yeah, so I got sure. so many patients where like I grew up with mom and dad or like the second generations that are coming in now and things like that. And I just don't want to have that hometown feel with my patients and I'm able to do that more. And one thing that helps a lot with that is like, let's say a patient comes in and has a broken bracket. Like that's like a train wreck on the schedule sometimes. Like, in, <laughs> right. So, yeah. so it used to be like, oh man, like uh, I hear on the radio, unreported broken bracket. Like, oh man, I'm like, okay, I got to go back to that case now. I'm going to spend more time on that chair or things like that. Now, like they'll tell me about it, but a lot of times I won't find out about it until they've already fixed it with the IDB jig. I know. And so That's I'm amazing. able to schmooze with the parents or spend more time on a consult or things like that versus like immediately having to go to that chair to fix it so it doesn't mess up the column for the day. Right? I'm, I'm laughing because I'm thinking back to my podcast with Jackie Sheik. Yeah. Right. You know, we both got the bracket check. Oh, yeah. Know? Totally. Right. Yeah. <laughs> totally. And like I have shivers going through my spine right now just hearing that. Yeah. But. Yeah. And she's done that with Light Force. Right. So yeah. that's the beauty of those systems like that is being able to delegate that sort of stuff. And Collins has this great lecture talking about like practice culture and enabling your staff to manage problems for you based off of the values that you instill in your practice. And, cool. you know, it's more from like a customer service standpoint, you yeah. know, or being able to have them handle problems for you before you even even know about it because they're enabled and empowered to make those corrections for you. But imagine like how nice that would be to be able to do that on a clinical standpoint, like where cases are so predictable and things are going along so well that your staff gets to the point where they just pretty much know what's next. Yeah. And so a lot of times like I'll... Uh, sit down with a patient. Okay. They're already in their new wire. Like high five, you know, see you next time. Yeah. You know, wear some rubber bands. Yeah. You know, I do that, that too. Dream, right. I've gotten really to the point where I'm really keen on putting in like a next visit. No. And that's something yeah. like, you know, we did before digital, but you know, I really try to have it in there because that way, if I am in a consult or in the middle of something else, they pretty much know, like you said, that it becomes systematized in a sense, like what wire to go to. They sort of understand the next yeah, steps because- totally. You know, it's not going to be like towards the end of treatment, like, okay, are we putting wire bends in? Are we repositioning brackets? Like, what do we do? There's some docs out there that are just so amazing and they can eyeball what they need to do with the bracket, you know, flip it upside down or switch this one to that one. Or like all Chad those, Foster. Yeah, Chad Foster or like even like um, Neil Kravitz and like all those guys. Yeah. All of us aspire to be like that, right? But when you're sitting down in the chair and you're, you've got like five seconds to make this decision, like how are you able to do that, you know? And it gets tougher to do versus now, like you have all this stuff programmed into the appliance already. So the corrections that you're making to finish are maybe a vertical bend here or there, or maybe you're fixing a rotation. Like you're not trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to sell the occlusion on this case? Or like, how am I going to finish this last little tiny bit of, you know, class two correction, like all that stuff. It's just basically mostly done for you already. Yeah. It's an amazing thing. You know, as much as I try to be a ninja and I really care about the clinical and finishing and detailing, I don't know. I'm like a yellow or green yeah, belt right? in karate. Yeah. I, I'm not a Chad Foster or Neil Kravitz in that sense. Yeah. So. And I feel like a lot of us out there are, you know, yeah. where we would love to learn these techniques. And then there's a question of, 
even if you do learn these techniques, how good are you going to get? You know, it's like I look at, hey, Eddie Van Halen could pick up any guitar and play like, you know, eruption with it. But like, could I do that? No. Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I could fake it, make it maybe sound, I, I couldn't even do that. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's so many docs out there that are really trying to do an awesome job for their patients and level up their clinical outcomes. And this is a one way to do it. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And I think people hear about these digital systems and, you know, there's some that think like, oh, you know, this is doctors just trying to get more time off or, you know, look at it from that yeah. perspective. So many of those techniques out there have built themselves that way. Like, hey, this is way more efficient. And that's kind of like saying, like, OK, yeah. So if you're on the freeway and you just take your hands off the wheel, like that's autopilot. Like, no, <laughs> that's yeah. not true. It's different if you're in a Tesla versus a random car that just has cruise control. You know, like that's where the difference is. And so this isn't just a claim that it's more efficient. I mean, are there double-blind clinical studies out there yet that have proven this? Like, no, but not yet, I would say. But I mean, how many of those techniques that we do every day that aren't vetted that way? So I don't know. I've seen it in my practice. Yes, I have a vested interest in this because, yes, I am an investor. But at the same time, I want to see the clinical outcomes and have my life be better, too. Yeah. And so for me, it's not just a belief. It's like what I've seen in my practice and others. So yeah, it's, it's not just a claim that they throw out there. Well, I think it's like, if you know, you know. So. Yeah, you know, and if you're already hitting all your numbers and your cases are finishing exactly how you want them to be and everything, you're doing everything with analog and that works for you, then man, more power to you. That's awesome. But I think there's a lot of docs who would love to hit that point and they're looking for solutions on how to get there. And this is one way to do it. When we come back in just a moment, we discuss other digital technologies Jared uses in his practice how he got involved with playing bass for a Latin jazz band, and how he and his wife met the Pope. Stay with us. You're listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. Kind support for this podcast comes from the JCO. The Journal of Clinical Orthodontics is the only monthly peer-reviewed orthodontic journal focusing on the clinical rather than the academic side of the specialty. Unlike information posted on social media, everything in the JCO has been rigorously curated, vetted, and edited all by some of the best professionals in the world. I personally subscribe to the JCO because I love its clinical content and find it extremely relevant to my practice. Illuminate listeners can use the promo code POD, that's P-O-D, at checkout for 10% off a new subscription. Please head over to jco-online.com to subscribe today. And we're back to our conversation with Dr. Jared Gianquinto. So let's talk about some other digital technologies. Yeah. So we got into 3D printing early with the Juel printer, and then we switched over to Sprint Ray. The Juel was cool, but it was like a one-trick pony. Like all it did was just print like models for aligners. And then Sprint Ray came out, and we could do indirect bonding, and you can even print like crowns and stuff like that now. We don't really do that, but we switched over to ULab a few years ago. Oh, and so sweet. early on, I was using Orchestrate, and I was using Artsform, and all these different other systems that came around and ULab got such amazing reviews from all the docs I knew. Like Rick Jurassitano, like he was the rep and I was like hammering on him, hey man, when am I going to get this ULab thing? Like I want it, I'm using other stuff and like, oh, finally he uh, got me in and got me a demo case with it. And So we've been with ULab for a while for our in-office aligners. But we're also using Embrace too, you oh, know, nice, and that's yeah. pretty awesome uh, solution there too. So yeah. 
we have so many patients in our community who are aligner dropouts, you know, like we're, Me too. you know, aligners aren't the right solution for them and they are not going to do braces. So like having that other modality to be able to have a solution for them is really awesome to be able to say, Hey, yeah, I've got something for you. If aesthetics are your number one priority, then we have a solution for you and get your smile looking awesome without seeing braces or having to wear aligners. Right now we're using Light Force, which yeah. of course is a labial braces sure. option, but more cosmetic, I would say. Yeah. But yeah, it's funny you use the term aligner dropouts. We've got so yeah. You know, you think it's going to be the kids not wearing these aligners. It's the adults. It's the adults. And they pay for it. Yeah. It's like, come on, get your act together, people. Yeah, I am an aligner dropout. You know, yeah. I mean, I tried doing it and I try to relate this to my patients, especially Embrace has been very popular with healthcare people. Oh, interesting. Because uh, me being an orthodontist, you know, I would um, do great with my aligners starting the day and then I'd want a cup of coffee and I'd take out my aligners and then next thing you know, it's 3 p.m. I'm like, I haven't worn it all day. I was like, are you going to be able to wear these things 22 hours a day to make them successful? And they're like, no. I said, well, let's look at Embrace. And that's been very successful with like our doctors and nurse practitioners and things yeah. like that who want to get a better looking smile. Do you find there's a steep learning curve to Embrace or was that pretty easy once you knew the other digital technologies? Embrace is a totally different type of mechanics. So there's a pretty big learning curve with it. It's getting a lot better. And we started with them really early, uh, you know, thanks to my friends, Susie Padre and Heather Desch. They <laughs> yeah. worked with John Pham and like that was how I kind of found out about Embrace. Oh, interesting. And, and yeah. so I was early on with that because I knew it, that we needed it. We had um, needed some incognito in school and did some cases early on and Me it was too. just... Yeah. Um, Oh man, was that, that was a tough system to work with. And when I saw this, I have so many patients that where this would be a solution for them. So we jumped in with it, but you've got to learn all the non-sliding mechanics. It's almost like saying, because you know how to move teeth with braces that you know how to move teeth with aligners. And that's not really true. Interesting. Okay. Right? That's a good analogy. Because you have to start thinking force systems and all that stuff. And so when you really jump into like Nico's and Maz's lectures, it's all about visualizing the force systems, right? Yeah. And so imagine doing that, but now it's lingual. And on, you know, we're working with a different force on the center of rotation and resistance and light wires, like, ooh, okay. So like there's all these side effects that you have to be able to treat and plan and anticipate. Okay. So it is like learning a new language in a sense. It is. It is. Yeah, it is. But the training is much better than it was when we first started. And of course, like Gen 2 Embrace is a much better appliance that has a lot more capability now. So like it's a lot more simple than it used to be. Okay. What were some of the improvements that came out with Gen 2? Torque control. I mean, okay. in, early on, you know, you had torque control on the upper wire because of how the loops were formed, but on the lower, you didn't. So it was basically a 2D system. You had rotational control and maybe had a little bit of vertical, but you didn't have any torque. And that was a challenge, like working with that. Just when we'd figured it out, you know, like, oh, by the way, we're doing Gen 2. And they're like, no, you know, we just figured this out and how to do all these cases efficiently. And then they changed the system completely. Oh, jeez. So they changed the wire design and the, the locket design and the racket design and everything that was a... Total improvement across the board, but now the mechanics changed again. So we had to start over and learn how to do that. But I will say that the appliance was much better and a lot more predictable and easier to learn. Great. You mentioned your in-house aligner cases before. What are you using for your outsourced aligner cases? When it comes to in-house aligners, like we print and deliver. If it's like six or fewer, we'll do them in-house. And if it's a few more than that, okay, then we'll outsource to U-Labs like U-Smile. But if it's like a full-blown aligner case, like they have the U-Assist and all those kind of things, but I just like the automation of a full-service aligner system. Okay. And 3M's Clarity aligners work really well for us, so we use those. for oh, great. So for those cases that are, they really are true full aligner cases and they want to do aligners and they will do them, then okay, we'll use that. And it's been really good for us. Awesome. And why do you like Clarity over maybe like Spark or some of the other competitors out there? 
You know, we got away from uh, line technology about six or seven years ago, and 3M was probably the, they were the first like real player. And the workflow and everything and the interface was pretty similar to Invisalign, so it was an easy transition and jump over that. And we were pretty much a 3M shop at the time, so we tried it out and we liked it, so we kind of stuck with that. Okay, awesome. Yeah. And are they still using the two different types of plastic, the Force and the Flex? Yeah, yeah the Force and the Flex, and that's nice to have you know, for different types of movements. Like I like to start off the cases with the Flex, and then uh, like when you're trying to get those lower incisors dialed in, you want to switch it to force, you know, to get that last gotcha. bit of correction. So you do that there. in like a refinement stage, you switch. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. I mean, that's a super cool option that we don't have with Invisalign. Yeah. That's one of those differentiators, but it all comes down to what are you used to using? When it comes to aligners, like, you know, how much work do you want to put on yourself? Like if you want to do all the setups yourself with ULab, you can, if you want to outsource it, okay, then you've got, you've got a lot of options now. So are you doing any kind of remote monitoring in the practice? Yeah, we use Grin in the office, and that's been awesome. awesome for us, too. Initially, we're just using it for aligners only okay. because, you know, compliance is a challenge for everyone who's doing aligners, and at least with the remote monitoring, you can keep them more accountable, you know? Like, you can say, hey, it's not that it's not working. It's that you're not holding up your end of the deal here, you know? <laughs> I and get that. Yeah, right? So we, we started using it with aligners. Then we started implementing it more. So we started with expander checks, expansion appliances. That's really awesome to use it for that. And then we started giving it to all of our patients, actually. Once we got our monitoring systems on our end, we used their human intelligence for a while once we got a lot of scans going. Okay. But once we got a little more organized into scanning intervals and what days that people were scanning, we insourced it again because I was able to task my staff with checking these things out. So now I only have to look at personally a couple of scans a week. There's a couple that are my babies that are assigned <laughs> to me, right? And yeah. then my staff pretty much uh, monitors everything else and then hits me up on a Slack, like if there's something I need to look at. But from a fixed standpoint, I mean, people look at what do you use it for, you know? Yeah. And so where we use it is if we're in a position where we're just waiting on compliance, like say if a patient's wearing elastics, like I don't need you to come in the office and like tell you to wear your elastics, you know? Right. Here's your grin scope. This is what you got to do. We'll have you scan every couple of weeks. And once you're ready, you come back in. But if a patient isn't wearing rubber bands, are they scanning their teeth? Most of the time they are because it's on mom's phone. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. That's yeah. the trick. So that's one of the tricks there too. I mean, you get patients where it's like too much for them. Like they just can't handle the scans. Like if a parent tells me that they're too busy to scan, but they'd rather just come in every six weeks because they can schedule easier. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like <laughs> it's, yeah. So I know Adam Schulhoff on our Illuminate Live episode yeah. mentioned the human intelligence. Is yeah. that basically sort of like they have team members that will review the scans? Is that what that yeah, is? Yeah, that is. They actually have real people that are highly trained and experienced orthodontic assistants that are like looking humans? at scans for humans. <laughs> yeah, actually humans. We had Debbie. Debbie's awesome. She's based out of Lubbock, Texas, and we That's love her to cool. death. And she was a huge help for us as we were ramping up all of our scanning because she was able to take the workload off of our team. And it's so funny. Bakersfield and Lubbock, Texas are very similar. <laughs> and so, I mean, Bakersfield is a kind of country town and Lubbock totally is. And so our patients really took to Debbie like right off the bat when they come into their office, like, where's Debbie? We want to say hi. And you're like, oh, she actually lives in Texas. Like, what? But some of the challenges that we had at the time is, you know, Grin integrates with some software. The kind of disconnect between like, being able to see what's going on in the patient's chart versus like what's going on in the scans. And it's easy for us in the office because we have both windows open, but in like a remote monitoring thing, like that may not be there. Oh, interesting. And okay. so they've fixed a lot of that now, but uh, at the time what we had some opportunities in the office to insource it and my staff wanted some more hours. So I was like, okay, let's start monitoring from the office. And that's been huge. So now it's really kind of funny because my clinical manager, Kayla, does all the scan reviews and like all the hygiene points and stuff like yeah. that. And then the patient will sit down and the parent will say, so somebody on Grin was telling me that Johnny missed a spot. And then Kayla said, yeah, that was me. <laughs> and uh, we still missed that here, here, and here, and here, you know. And 
Fortunately, I had team members on staff that were looking for uh, additional hours and wanted to have that flexible, like working from home and stuff yeah. so like that's been good for them. It's really helped out with accountability and predictability too, because when you're looking at efficiency, sometimes you want to space those appointments out, right? So when you're getting a lot more efficient and it's taking your fewer visits to finish a case, you run into the problem of finishing them early. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is good and bad, right? I mean, you have patients that are done like way before their payment schedules are up or things like that. So maybe sometimes you want to space those intervals out a little bit more. And I never felt so great about like letting a patient go like 12 or 14 weeks without like knowing what's going on at least because you can have hygiene that goes bad during that time. You can have all kinds of other problems. And with GRIN, you don't have to add another visit. You can just say, hey, we're going to put you on like a three or four week scanning schedule. And then we know what's going on with the patient. And usually they're They'll scan a week before they come in, and most of the time we know what we're doing before they even sit in the chair. So it's super awesome. That's great. From yeah. that sense. So, Jared, I was just thinking of the first time we met, I think it was an MOPC <laughs> at a relapse concert. Yeah, and I, I remember after the show, you came up to me and you're like, hey, hey, I play bass too. You know, my mind was blown because I thought I was the only orthodontist <laughs> bass player we're in the there, world. You know? uh, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I think we should give a quick shout out. Of course, Jackie Sheik. Awesome job with relapse, yep. Killing it. Curvin Mack. Yeah. Right. He's a budding bass player. Totally. He's doing great with it. Do you know of anyone else that brings the thunder? I guess I'd be the other one. <laughs> I don't know if I'd bring the thunder, but. I guess there's only four of us in the uh, world. Uh, so well, there might be another one out there somewhere. You might not. Might, well, there might is another. Him. Yes. Awesome, man. So, you know, I've heard some of your work. I think this is super cool. You know, you've been playing bass probably since a young age, I would assume. Yeah, college college yeah. age. Yeah, that's when yeah. I started. But you play in a Latin jazz band. Yeah. Tell us yeah. about that, man. Yeah. So, I mean, I've played in college and bar bands and stuff. And then in ortho school, one of my friends from dental school, her husband owned a entertainment company and they catered and provided all the entertainment for all like the weddings and mitzvahs, like all the Jewish That's weddings awesome. and mitzvahs all up yeah. the East Coast. And so I played in a wedding band for them and also had a hip hop and funk band that we played around the <laughs> Philly and South Jersey area. I've always loved music and came home and started playing music again with some, actually my dad's band. Yeah. So, so he was cool. playing with a blues band at the time and I was like the substitute bass player. And So uh, your dad plays bass too? No, my dad plays uh, saxophone. Okay. Yeah. He's a sax player and he was playing with the blues band and then they needed a substitute bass player. And this one particular gig, they had all these subs. These are all old guys, like in their fifties and sixties. And my dad's older than that, but they had all their sons that came in and they kind of subbed in. So the drummer was a sub and the guitar player was a sub and then I was. And then we all were playing together like, we got to do something on our own. And so we played all kinds of different genres from like country and metal to rock. And then a friend of mine who's one of my referring dentists, she had a party for her husband, birthday party, and said, he loves like Spanish guitar. Do you know anybody in town who plays that? And I didn't know anybody, but I knew my buddy James was a metal shredder and he could learn just about anything. And I said, hey, when's this gig? And she said, oh, it's about six weeks. So I called up James. I said, hey, man, do you think you could learn some Spanish stuff like in six <laughs> weeks? <laughs> and he yeah, says, yeah. yeah, man, let's do it. So we put together a set and played it. And it was really fun. And we decided that we put too much work into this to like let it go. Okay. And so we got together and we polished all the songs and then went to Guadalajara <laughs> and recorded an album down there. So yeah. That is so yeah, cool. You recorded cool. an album in Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, and it's so good. I have to mention, it's called uh, Los Ligados. Los Ligados, yeah. right? L-I-G-A-D-O-S, if yeah. you want to check it out. I think you guys are on Apple Music and Spotify, Spotify and yeah. all the things. Yeah. But the music is really oh, thanks. good. Thanks, man. I understand most recently you linked up with my buddy Josh Samoji, right? 
Yeah, yeah that's, Josh that's from a, that was, Ortho. Man, that was a, a total like whirlwind of connections. I didn't know this, but he was in the music scene in Philly at the same time, like when I was in ortho school. Oh, so in my wow. band, I was playing this band called Beatnik Brown, and we played all these little you know bars and dives around the whole area. Fast forward to you know to just a couple of years ago, I'm talking to Josh, and we're just randomly talking about Philly and music and things. And he told me that he had played professionally and like his whole music career thing. I'm like, where did you play? And he told me all these venues like the Grape Room and like all these others. I was like, dude, what was the name of your band? And he told me, it's like, I remember seeing your name like and your oh, band wow. name like on the bills. Like we would yeah. play the crappy like Thursday night gigs, and you would play Saturday night. Oh, <laughs> you know, okay. you'd have yeah. the headliner yeah. shows. And we just kept talking about like, hey, sometime we need to jam. And finally, it was at MOPC last year in Phoenix, like, because he always brings his guitar to every show. Yeah. So give me a set list of stuff you sing and play, and like, I'll learn the bass lines, and we'll just see what happens. And we just jammed in a hotel room. And since then, we have this thing like where we meet up at different shows, like, we'll get together and jam a little bit. So we kind of made it a thing and trying to think of dental names or ortho names. And <laughs> You should and have called I, me. That's my thing. Right? You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know you had some awesome names. And I'm like, what about the trade show specials? You know, because like, that's he's like, really dude, good. that's awesome. Like, this is basically what it is. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we play acoustic. You know, he's a singer song and a very powerful singer. And Josh just, is amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I just play my little U bass usually. I mean, but if we're going to have a real show, I'll bring the real gear. But yeah, I think Josh, he does this thing. It's called like the nondescript hotel room yeah, sessions, yeah. right? Where yeah, he's so just we kind of like tagged off of that. You know, singing his heart in. out on a bed at, a, I don't know, Motel yeah. 6 or something. At least that's yep. how I'm envisioning it. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm sure you stay at nicer places. He stays Josh. at very nice places. So it's probably a Ritz Carlton. Uh, but in my mind, it's a Motel 6. And yeah, super cool. And I understand you guys have like an yeah, official gig a, yeah, coming up. Can you, show can you tease that? We're making it official. So I think I'm not sure if it's going to be the debut unless we get together before that. We're going to be playing a show at AAO this year. Upcoming AAO, yeah, right? Okay, New Orleans. In New Orleans. It'll be an event uh, sponsored by Allure and Mary's List and Kale Owen. And, Sweet. Uh, I think it's called Bourbon Heat is the venue. And okay. uh, Josh and I are going to go up there and play some stuff. I'll be there. I'm going to invite myself up for yes, a song. Yes, it'll be raw, unfiltered, you know, acoustic, you know, whatever happens, happens. <laughs> <laughs> I love yeah. it. All the screw ups and hey, whatever. You know, it's, it's live music, you know. Yeah, it, man, that's it, what that's, it's all about. That's the art. Yeah, right. I love it. I will be there. Awesome, Can't man. wait to check it out. I'll be cheering you guys on oh, uh, and forcing myself on stage. Jared, I want to talk about some of your hobbies and interests here. Yeah. You've got so many. I, I joked <laughs> you many. with James Bond before. So growing up in California, of course, you're a surfer. When did you get into surfing? I didn't get into surfing until after college. Because I mean, <laughs> in growing up, like we did horses and like mountain stuff. Like we were, grew up in Bakersfield, you know. Like, That's it's, true. Yeah, it's yeah. A, this cowboy town, you know. And then I moved to Morro Bay and there really wasn't much else to do. I mean, <laughs> besides go learn how to surf. And it was kind of a brutal area to surf because it's big and gnarly waves and the water's super cold. <laughs> <laughs> And then I discovered other areas like down south in San Clemente and stuff. And then I feel like I got pretty good like once I moved to San Diego. So that was oh, right that on, was man. awesome. Yeah. Where was like the best place you've ever surfed? Oh, well, that'd be the Maldives. But like that's oh. a much, much later. But I mean, San Diego is just an amazing spot to learn how to surf. It's very consistent there. You know, like you've got waves all year round. You can go find something. Oh, yeah. super cool. And do you have like a wish list or like somewhere you would love to surf that you've never been? 
I want to go check out El Salvador. And, oh, really? Uh, That's yeah. a surf place? Yeah, it totally is. Yeah. A couple of my buddies are going in a couple of weeks and I, I can't go. <laughs> I'm so bummed. I would never uh, think of El Salvador as like yeah. a surf capital. Yeah. And then I love going down to Baja and of course, Hawaii is amazing. So there's yeah. lots of little surf destinations I'd like to hit at some okay. point, but I'm trying to work my kids into it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned flying before. So, I mean, is that something you're doing regularly? Yeah. I fly quite a bit. My wife calls our airplane the time machine. Like we don't have like a jet or anything. I've got like a single engine plane. It's super convenient for getting around the state in California because, like, you can miss all the traffic. So we love to go to San Diego. If we drive, it takes five and a half hours you know, or Ooh, more traffic. with traffic, you yeah. know. Um, but if we fly, it's an hour and 15 and, and we're there oh, and perfect. we're there before the kids start crabbing. So, like, that's really pretty awesome. Yeah, you never take them up to 15,000 feet and just... You don't... No, don't have to. <laughs> no. <laughs> what are some of your favorite places that you travel to? I love Italy. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, you're Italian too, Paisan. Yeah. You know? Cristo Gustavo Rocheta. See, yeah. Yep. <laughs> it rolls off the tongue with tequila. It does. Gustavo Rocheta. Yeah. My first trip to Italy was for our honeymoon. So my wife and I oh, wow. uh, went yeah. to Europe and we flew into London and then went to Venice and then took the train down to Rome. And a couple of years before that, we were uh, hanging out with some friends from dental school and talking about like our ideas for where we wanted to go for our honeymoon. And they said, are you going to Europe? And I said, well, yeah, I think we want to go. And they said, well, you should go meet the Pope. And we said, what? <laughs> I remember that um, my friends Kasha and Adam, like they had an audience with Pope John Paul II. And they said, well, it's really not that hard to do. You should do it. And so we kind of put it in the back of our minds. And then when we were really planning our honeymoon, like, well, let's see what we got to do to do this. And so we started talking to our pastor, you know, and we got married in Mexico by my dad, who was a judge. So, you know, he, oh, was, yeah. Yeah, he was a very reasonable minister. You know, as far as like price. Were, were part of your <laughs> vows like traffic uh, confessions? No, or? no, 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 okay. no. But we got married legally and then we got our marriage blessed by the church. Yeah. And we told him that we wanted to go meet the Pope. We said, have, have you ever known anybody that's done this? He's like, I've heard of it, but I've never known anybody that actually did it. So we got in touch with the American parish in Rome and they basically just check your credentials, make sure that you have your marriage certificate. And they tell you like, show up at this day and this time. And then you'll have your audience with the Pope. Fast forward to like two weeks before the trip, we're all excited and everything, and my wife's passport gets stolen. So, man, that was a huge mess. And we had this this whole trip planned, and we're all crushed, like wondering if we're actually going to be able to get to go. And so what uh, happened? We um, hired a passport expediting service. And they basically walk you through the State Department and like handle it all. So oh, we, wow. we got okay. there and finally end up in Rome on a Tuesday, you know, because yeah. they do the papal audiences on Wednesdays. The requirements are, are not as stringent as you might think. Like you have to be Catholic. You have to have your marriage blessed by the Pope or get married by the church. You have to go within 90 days of being married and you have to show up in your wedding attire, which is oh, like, uh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. So we go to the American diocese in Rome and uh, the pastor there was very jaded about this whole thing We because we were so excited. He's like, all right, yeah, here's your tickets. And like, oh my God, this guy's so nonchalant about this whole thing. He says, you know, if you get to the gates and you're having a hard time and they won't get you through, just cry. Like, and they'll, and they'll let you through. <laughs> the next morning we get better in our wedding attire and we go up to the gates and then the papal gentlemen see us because we're in our, you know, my wife's in her wedding dress and I'm in my suit. And they're, oh, yeah, Sposi Novelli, come with me. And then they just, they take our tickets and like walk us all the way up to what we thought was the front, which is, you know, five or six rows from where the Pope was. And with the whole audience, it was awesome. And then we thought that was it. Like, okay, this is pretty cool. And then they're like, no, no, no. Okay, come over here. And they bring us over to the rail. And then he comes around and actually comes and meets every single couple. What? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was awesome. And oh, um, wow. so we got our minute with him, you know, and that was really So what amazing. did you say to the Pope? 
that was an amazingly humbling experience because, you know, it comes around and we were the only Americans there. So like they're from all different people, we're yeah. all from different countries. The papal gentleman is, comes ahead and gives you the rules. Like, okay, no phones, no selfies, you know, we'll take pictures for you. <laughs> Self, you know, yeah. Yeah. Can't That's take the any world selfies we live in, in yeah. Right. And he comes over, you know, you think about meeting celebrities and things like a meet and greet, you know, it's yeah. like they're kind of there, they're kind of not there. But those couple of seconds with Pope Francis, you know, he grabs your hands and he says, oh, where are you from? I said, we're from America. He says, thank you so much for coming. I, you know, we bust our marriage. And he said, he said, please pray for me. Oh, wow. And I said, I was just totally taken aback. I was like, well, yeah, of <laughs> yeah. course, you know, and it was just a, kind of an amazing little moment there. Yeah. And we got the pictures and we couldn't believe that that had happened. It was pretty amazing. Wow. Yeah. What an awesome story. Jared, it's come time to wrap it up here. It's been an awesome podcast. Awesome. I've enjoyed having you on. This tequila is amazing. We might have a little more. <laughs> uh, we are about to have a good night out in St. Pete, maybe have some cocktails, some dinner. Thank you again so much coming all the way from California. Happy to be here. It's been an honor to have you on. Cheers, sir. Salute. Cheers. Salute. Yeah. Chantani, as we say, right? Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode of the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. If you're a fan of the show, be sure to subscribe or follow Illuminate on your favorite podcast app. Also, I'd appreciate if you could rate our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. A very special thanks to our sponsors for this episode. That's ULab Systems and the JCO. As always, this podcast would not be possible without the Illuminate team. That's Skylar Adler, joined by Johnny Mitchell behind the boards, and Tom O'Grady on the Fender Rhodes electric piano. Thanks so much for listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. To hear exclusive outtakes, suggest a guest, or sponsor an episode, head over to IlluminateOrthoPodcast.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Chris Seta signing off. Yes, that was Dr. G sitting in on bass guitar. If you've listened this far, you just found our hidden bonus content and outtakes. Well, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, Jared? I'm doing great. Thanks, Chris. Let me try that again because my voice is cracking. Need a little more tequila. Yes. Skylar, we're going to have to edit this out already. We're already flubbing. (laughs) Where was like the craziest place you guys had to sort of land that you weren't anticipating? I think the craziest one was we were coming back from my grandparents' place in Illinois you know, this is before the days of like real time weather and all that stuff. So I remember my dad like getting up super early and watching the Weather Channel. Okay. And trying to get weather reports. And he would call and talk to somebody at the weather briefing and they would kind of guess like what the weather was going to be on a, on a trip that long. And sometimes you run into this like crazy stuff in the Midwest, like in the whole Tornado Alley area. Oh, sure. And so we were coming through Kansas and I remember this, that we just saw this like black wall coming up. Like it was as high as we could see it. And we heard on the radio that some airplanes that had gone in there were turning around because they were having structural damage. Like the turbulence is so bad. So we landed in a little town called Emporia, Kansas. 
Okay. Yeah. And landed. And uh, I remember we tied down the airplane and my dad asked the guy at the FBO, as they call it, like, hey, could you put our airplane in the hangar tonight? And he says, yeah, it'll be a hundred bucks. And my dad's like, you know, it's in the eighties. That's kind of expensive, but yeah, let's, let's do that. <laughs> and so he put it in the hangar and we went out to this motel that was like so seedy. It was, oh, <laughs> it was really sketchy. The hail that night was so bad. It was like golf ball to like baseball sized hail. Wow. And all the planes that were left outside were destroyed. That is crazy. Yeah. And we flew off the next morning, blew the skies and went the rest of the way home. (laughs) That's pretty intense. Yeah. You're not in Kansas anymore. Oh, you're in Kansas. Oh, you are. (laughs) (laughs) You're staying in Kansas. Yeah. And then other fun fact is if you've ever seen the Coca-Cola Santa Clauses during the wintertime, right? All the artwork was done at my grandparents' ranch in Tucson. So at the ranch? At the ranch, yes. And if you see those, the iconic Coca-Cola, you know, Santa Claus with the two kids sitting in his lap. It's like, of it's course, a pop who doesn't know thing. that? Yeah. That's actually my mom and my aunt who are the models. Wait, back up. Yeah. No way. I got to look this up. It's true. Every couple of years, the Coca-Cola or somebody will dig it up and contact my mom about being the Coca-Cola. Does she get like royalties on that or like- no? No, because I think she was six years old and she was really mad about being forced to wear her woolen PJs in the summertime because it was hot. She got a free Coke, basically. Yes. (laughs) 